see some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got yeah, guy. Yeah, guy. Welcome, everybody. Spit. It's the Spit Podcast. Last week, I re- I recognized that I didn't say yeah, guy, and I wonder if anyone else noticed that. I'm hoping did they didn't. I'm hoping they didn't. Maybe we can just be be done with the silly phrase. Would you actually want to be done? It's your catchphrase. Uh, it's, it's not not really my i guess it is mine but i mean it's become yours yeah which maybe isn't very good who knows (laughs) i that's funny that you say that i did not notice but apparently that means you go back and listen yeah i do i listen i listen to our stuff i listen to all of my podcasts and i've mentioned this before on 1.5 speed oh that's right yeah and i want to bring something up david because there's a podcast that I think I listened to yesterday that I think you might be fascinated with. I was, and I know you've listened to Tim Ferriss before, right? Tim Ferriss. Yep. yep. So Jordan Peterson was on his latest number five Oh two on the rules for life and psychedelics and the Bible. It's just a really, really insightful, fascinating, uh, He's a guest, obviously. He's a he's a really good guest. I know you've listened to probably to Jordan Peterson in the past. He uh, rankles some people a little bit, but I find him to be an important voice and one that shouldn't be uh, that should be listened to. And it's a really really insightful podcast, the Tim Ferriss Show, number five oh two. The first few times that I heard Jordan Peterson, it was before he was famous. And then there was all sorts of controversy about him and his viewpoints, like you said, rankles people. And I was confused. I was I like, know. what What are they upset about? He just said fact, and I don't understand what they're upset about. So then I started reading the criticisms and the complaints, and they were all completely misinterpreting anything that Jordan ever said. And the fact that he's become a polarized figure is so insanely bizarre to me and i don't like wholesale subscribe to 100 percent of everything that he says or even like share the same views on life or the world as he does but he does state a lot of fact and so you can kind of us uh, um ascribe your own worldview to that fact and have an opinion on that fact but he is largely just saying facts you know yeah, it's really I, shocking. I, I totally agree with everything you said there. there. There's no doubt that you're you're sort of befuddled as to why people would be against a scientist. Exactly. You know? Yeah. He, he's a he's a Harvard trained 20 year clinical psychologist. Uh, the thing that rankles people is are some of his um, I don't even want to say opinions, but like, you know, some of his viewpoints on patriarchy. Yes. That's where a lot of people are like, oh my God, you know, and, but they, but, but they, they do take it and, and they twist it, you know? Well, to me, they aren't even viewpoints. They're just conclusions that he's drawn based on the facts. So it might be something to the effect of throughout history, 
this is the way things are. And this is why men behave in these roles and women behave in these roles. And then people freak out and they go, what? He goes, he's not saying women should behave in these roles or men should behave in these roles. He's just saying, if you look at history and fact, and I have, and here's all the numbers and the data and the stats, it's logical that then these roles would be played by both, you know? And so people confusing that and thinking that he is forming an opinion or something like that is what's crazy. And they're the ones who are obviously projecting an opinion more than anybody with less fact and less anything. But I will listen to that. Um, I saw Tim, Tim Ferriss advertise that. And I immediately was like, Oh, great. Like people are going to be up in arms because Jordan Peterson, uh, but then my other thought was I haven't actually listened to Tim Ferriss in a while and I don't know why I listened pretty steadily for a year or two. And then I kind of got off it. Just, it was, it's almost like how much can the listener, you and I be focused on trying to improve our life and improve our efficiency and improve because one episode, it's like, okay, now let me sit with that for six months and try to apply some of these things. But if you listen to two episodes a week, it's just all overwhelming. And I feel like it doesn't actually, nothing sticks anymore. It's too much. There's some uh, fascinating stuff on psilocybin, you know, mushrooms and the fact that that's, some states are legalizing them and what that means to society and what actually psilocybin does to opening us up to um for lack of a better phrase, a spiritual experience. And um, I did not know that Jordan Peterson was was in the alcohol and drug, um, I don't know what the phrase would be, but he was a a clinical psychologist and alcoholism was his primary focus of all of the um, drug and alcohol um, abuses, I guess. He specifically focused on alcohol, but he has plenty of insight into studies on psilocybin. And uh, it's pretty interesting, man. There, there's some really fascinating, pretty deep stuff. And I agree with you. When I see Jordan Peterson, I sometimes go, oh, I like listening to him, but I know he's, you know, he, for whatever reason, you know, he, he gets a, I think he gets a bad rap. Oh, for sure he does. No, and and he could not be more measured and methodical in his approach like real clear-minded blue flame just like and so it's shocking to me that people project that he's something other than that because he couldn't be more just kind of straightforward yeah um regarding psilocybin i've been tracking those conversations for a couple years now and listening i mean mainly through podcasts you know um Certainly Tim Ferriss talks about it. Um, I feel like Sam, what's his name? The Yeah, the, the meditation guy, Sam up. Harris. Sam, Sam Harris, Harris has talked yeah. talked a bit about it or interviewed a lot of people about it. Joe Rogan with a much more less scientific kind of yeah. <laughs> approach to it, but having scientists on. And um, a lot of them are researchers and academics that these pe- yeah. people will have on as guests. And it certainly seems like there's a lot of potential for, yeah, healing trauma and then also kind of expanding consciousness moving forward. And I I don't really experiment with drugs, but I'm totally open to um, the concept of it. I'm certainly not opposed to it either, even though I don't really experiment with them, you know? And the idea that like a lot of this stuff has been used for, you know, 
Ever. centuries and yeah basically for all of humanity and that and the idea that now we can kind of isolate variants and uh use very specific dosing for very specific traumas i think is where the big revolution will come to where it's not you know because people having a bad acid trip in the 70s and never thinking the same way again obviously is a scary thing and a lot of our generation or maybe our my parents generation that grew up with that as like the i don't know the stereotype are scared off but the reality is that's not the only option for doing things like psilocybin you know doing it in a controlled environment and even if it's um grown by you know a laboratory not not chemically but like naturally grown by a laboratory for a specific variant and all that makes a lot of sense it makes a whole heck of a lot more sense to me than the pharmaceuticals that are synthetically manufactured like that that epidemic that we've experienced in the last decade or two has gotten out of control and will be looked back on really uh i think yeah neg- neg- negatively negative. yeah yeah, yeah i i if any of the stuff that David's mentioning interests you, the listener, you should listen to this podcast because it is fascinating. And um, I just found it engrossing and uh, I, I couldn't get enough. I was bummed when it ended. It was one of those. You know? Okay, cool. I'll, yeah. I'll definitely listen. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have, a follow, I have a follow-up uh, from last week's conversation. We were talking about what, privatizing yeah. uh, wave rights. Yeah. Which, by the way, that was a total rumor. I got, uh, <laughs> nobody's the guy, the owners of Google are not buying cloud break. The people who are involved in ownership at those resorts are pissed that the rumor even broke. Cause now they're fielding tons of inquiries about it. But on another note, well, somebody, it, was a, it was a jumping off point for us for a much bigger issue. They're not mad at us. They're mad at beach grip for publishing the article. Uh, really? How mad, you know, um, you're an idiot. What, was, what was the word you used? <laughs> Rankled. Uh, so on another note related to that, somebody said two of my friends who had no money managed to surf cloud break back when you weren't allowed, they got dropped off 45 minutes away and they paddled all the way in. They had four to six foot waves all to themselves for an hour before getting told to leave. It was pretty tricky. So I don't think many would do it. They planned for it for years. It is the best option. Um, wait, is the best option is to have a test of ability and limit numbers and time on the break. So that's an interesting kind of question is like, look, if that is the limitation to it, look, if you could paddle 45 minutes in, you're welcome to surf it for an hour before our boats get there. I, my hat is off to those gentlemen for their, uh, for their gumption and their moxie to charge it like that to plan. I too have planned a strike mission. It was, of course, during the pandemic, and it was at two feet cold, closed out Torrey Pines State Beach. But um, I, Ooh, I, you finally revealed the spot. Yes, yes, I just did. <laughs> Only I took did, a year. I just revealed it. But um, in many ways, their forty-five minute into six foot cloud break is similar to my five minute sojourn into two foot Torrey Pines State Beach. It's basically the same thing. Similar, very similar. By the way, we should we celebrate the anniversary of when uh, lockdown began? That's coming in a week or two. Yes, we should celebrate. Remember, we're going to celebrate the anniversary of the two-week lockdown. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't know how we do year, that, but a year later, as we're locked down, <laughs> I know, right? It's all quite strange. Um, surfboard shaper Phil Becker sadly passed away of cancer on the Big Island. He was 81 years old, David, and it's noteworthy. Phil Becker shaped over 130,000 surfboards, and what's really noteworthy is that a majority of them as in the probably upwards of 95,000 of them, if not more, were all shaped by hand, no machine shapes. Unbelievable. He was known among shapers as a workhorse and also very unassuming, never in the limelight. And David, I would suggest to you that if you put six men in a lineup, I don't think I could pick Phil Becker out of the lineup. I know I saw a couple of photos of him in the last week and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had that same thought. <laughs> uh, renowned shaper Pat Rawson from the North Shore, who's originally a, a Los An from Los Angeles and who will be the icon of foam honoree at the boardroom show here in October. He points to Becker as an important mentor and I've heard Pat talk about Phil a lot. And he once quipped, and by the way, I'm taking some clips, um, some stuff that I grabbed from the internet. This was from Surfline. And this is what Pat Rawson had to say. Phil was a shaping machine before they had shaping machines. Phil Becker worked in the same shaping room his entire life, the one he first switched the lights on in the Rick Surfboards factory back in 1962. He used the same three Rockwell planers he bought in 1965, rebuilding them every couple of years. He cranked out an average of 2,500 boards annually. And when inducted into the International Surfboard Builders Hall of Fame in 2009, they reported that by 2004, Becker had shaped over 130,000 surfboards. Next in line, Al Merrick with 45,000. Jose Barahona, today Becker Surfboard's primary shaper, had this to say, Phil Becker was one of a kind. Bar Harona, who immigrated from El Salvador in 1981 to join his brother Oscar, who was a sander at the Rick factories. Jose said, I was sweeping floors in the factory when I first met Phil Becker. And I guess he saw some potential in me and I started doing more sanding, airbrushing and eventually shaping that he saw something in a 15 year old kid who couldn't even speak English to give this kid a chance to be a part of the Becker surfboard team. That says a lot about the kind of man he was. When Phil retired to the big Island 10 years ago, he handed the name Becker surfboards to me, this kid from El Salvador. And I'm proud to be representing his legacy said Jose, who still today dances around blanks in Becker's original shaping room. I take that responsible responsibility very seriously. Becker was so dedicated to shaping his surfboards. I mean, he didn't even get married until after he retired. I think he was afraid marriage might jeopardize his work. That there's one thing that I remember him saying to me, he said, Jose, never forget that you're not just making surfboards, you're making toys for grownups. There's nothing more satisfying than seeing the smile on a grownup's face when they come in to pick up their board, it's easy to make a kid smile, just give them a candy bar. But if you can make a grown up smile like a kid getting a candy bar, well, then that's really rewarding. So 
our hats are off and rest in peace, Phil Becker. Yeah. Great read. Um, it's interesting how these things exist in our awareness that you never really investigate. Like Becker has been a part of my surf life. Like, I mean, I must, it must've been in the first hundred boards that I ever saw in magazines and at the beach or whatever, it ha one of them had to be a Becker, maybe the first 50, one of them had to be a Becker and they've just always been there, but I never once investigated, uh, interviewing him for the podcast or finding out what he looks like or anything like that. But those boards are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Yeah. It's yeah, it's, yeah, it is. You know, there's that South Bay area there that in the sixties was the hotbed of surfboard manufacturing. Granted there was, there was a little bit with GNS down in San Diego and of course Hobie and Dana point, but I mean, you had, you know, Hap Jacobs, Dale Velzi, Greg Noel being, um, I know I'm missing quite a few, Dewey Weber, that whole area down there, right near El Segundo, that whole zone was just this incredible hotbed of surfboard manufacturing. And Becker was amongst them, right? But you never mentioned, I never mentioned Becker in those names. You know, like Becker was in that group of guys. Of course, he worked at Rick Surfboards, building boards for Rick for a long time before he went out on his own. So maybe that's part of it. But anyway, you're right. Um, very unassuming guy, you know, in the article on Surfline, they talked about him surfing at lower trestles well into his fifties and guys would drop in on him. No one even knew who he was, you know, yeah. like you were dropping in on Phil Becker and, 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 you know, no one knew, you know, which I admire. I really appreciate that stealth lifestyle. Um, and also like in business too, you know, there's so many flamboyant flashy want to be in the front of the camera. If they're the CEO of a company want to be like, you know <laughs> well in the uh, in the surf world in the surf that's world what i was just thinking i was gonna say a ton of guys like that i was gonna say they're the ceo of the company and they want to be interviewed for the billy kemper documentary <laughs> <laughs> or just sitting quietly and taking market share you know what i mean like sure we could yeah. name we can name bezos and like a, a few i don't know maybe um steve jobs was kind of one of the first of that generation in that tech world to kind of just like leverage the limelight to actually build the brand but quietly there's been dozens and dozens of ceos for oil companies and everything else that came before it that just quietly ruled the world and by the way there's a lot of while there might be a way to leverage growth for your company there's also a lot of risk once you're a public figure like that and there's actual yeah. risk for your family and so you know uh what's the company my oh, pillow no, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the, yeah, that's true. I'm thinking of the pharmaceutical company that was being sued this past year for uh -oh. the opioid epidemic. Like we don't even have a photograph of anybody in that family. You know what I mean? So, and that's, that's wise. And that's savvy for them, especially when the market turned against them because the opioid epidemic, their kids are probably targets at this point. So the yeah. fact that nobody can find a photo of that family is probably a good thing not just for criminals, but just for living a life of anonymity. <laughs> you know, um, you know, who comes to mind in the surfboard world. That's I'm trying to think of, of shapers that are kind of like Phil and Marcio is a lot like that. Marcio totally. is just very much like he's super smart. He just, he's very, he's got a lot of humility. He's humble. He's not seeking the limelight. He's building beautiful surfboards for world champions. And, and um, you know, you're talking about Marcio Zuvi from Sharp Eye, just exactly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, 
And I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of others too. There's a lot of guys you like, like Mike Wisnant from the East oh, coast yeah. comes to mind. There's a ton of guys that are just kind of just doing their thing and are, are incredible craftsmen. And, um, and I, at some point it, I feel like they deserved their name needs to be called out once in a while, you know, good for them. Well, for sure. And who knows if they even want it called out. You know? I know. And that's the, funny, the, the funny thing is Zuvi, uh, when he won the stab, spoiler alert, this Taj Burrow stab in the dark, um, he was almost, he didn't, he almost didn't want to accept the trophy. Like they gave it to him and he's like, oh, cool. So cool, you guys. I didn't know you were doing this this week. All right. Yeah. You got that's the cool. feeling that he realized he goes, oh shit, this is that moment where I'm supposed to be excited. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but he doesn't have an excitement button no, you know he's very even keeled um you mentioned wisnant and he's he is worth discussing and he's actually a subscriber a donor to this podcast scott oh, he cool. signed up a couple of weeks ago or a month or two ago um so shout out to wisnant and he's yeah quietly building boards in jacksonville i believe forever forever like yeah and then um his laminator posts it's like an epic instagram to follow if you're interested in uh, what laminators do it's called useless toys glassing and it's just beautiful imagery day after day like the other the one thing I noticed too about album surfboards when they got going was not only are they making beautiful boards but they photograph them beautifully and that's how I feel that really helped I think their growth and I think the same thing goes with Wisnant's laminator is he's doing killer work, but then he knows how to shoot it as well. So you see this imagery every day that you're just like captivated by it. It makes you, it doesn't feel like it's. Um... Well, one of the things that Matt Parker does really well, and, and there's a lot of guys that do this that are very savvy about their brand and their brand aesthetic. And um, Christensen is like this, Matt Parker, but to me, they're like, they're almost like Apple. Yeah. And that that it's very curated. It's well thought out. Everything is on brand. It's like the opposite of me. You know what I mean? Like I'm showing up with, you know, there's shit hanging out. No, uh, unshaven. Everything is on brand. That's on with, brand, by the way. <laughs> it is. Oh, by the way. I'm, if something was curated for you, it'd be off brand. This is a fascinating topic because I'm going to segue real quick. I got into a conversation with a well-known surf journalist about who was the GOAT, Kelly Slater or Tom Curran. And he's like, are you kidding me? Did you see that edit with Kelly Slater and Mason Ho at V-Land? He was, Kelly was just so polished and every, and knew the wave and every little bump and blah. And I went, well, I thought Mason kind of stole the show in that little edit. And he's like, yeah, Mason, blah, blah, blah. But, and, and this conversation evolved into Tom Curran. And I was like, dude, Tom Curran's the goat. Come on. And he's like, yeah, but I mean, he paddles out a skimboard with a torn wetsuit and, and, you know, with a leash wrapped around his waist at Rincon, he's writing these just gross thing, you know. Like, and I was like, that's why he's the GOAT. That's why Tom Kern is the GOAT. Tom Kern is the GOAT because he is off-brand. That is his brand. His brand is to be off-brand. And, oh, by the way, he doesn't even think I need to be off-brand. Like, it's so not manufactured. And I'm not saying that Kelly's is, but you get the feeling with Kelly that it feels like everything he does has to be approved by something or somebody somewhere like on fifth Avenue. And, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, Oh, you know, and, and I'm not, and I think it's even unconscious or subconscious. They're kind of the same thing. But the thing about Kelly, I mean, about Tom Curran, like no one can pull off roller skates at a trade show like Tom Curran and Tom Curran didn't plan that. 
his, yeah. he, he had a hurt ankle or something. And he goes, I'm going to try these. He was at a thrift store and happened to grab a free scrubber. That is incredible. <laughs> and that's why this concept of off-brand and on-brand is so fascinating to me because there's guys that try to be off-brand and it, it fails because they're trying. Tom never tries. His brand is off-brand because it's authentically and organically off-brand. Yeah, I think that sports grow to a level where there can be two goats and the one that you identify with says more about you is kind of what it's come <laughs> down to. And so, uh, you know, LeBron and Kobe or Jordan or whatever it is, Muhammad Ali and Tyson maybe. And so the one that you identify with kind of shows, oh, it's because you're methodical and pragmatic or it shows that you're just a brute and whatever. But I agree with you. I mean, if I had to pick one, Tom is the one that I want to associate with and um, hang with and surf like, ultimately. Yeah, it's the unpretentiousness of Tom Curran. You know, the fact that he would pick up a thing and go, free scrubber. Yeah. <laughs> but I just go, this guy, it wasn't planned. That wasn't, yeah. you know, he was just like some guy happened to have you know, filming. Anyway. So, you know what I think about sometimes is... um. Oh God, I got to delicately word this so as not to offend anyone who loves Tom. Uh, that would be me. So be careful. Uh, so I feel like you, you know, who ends up um, committing suicide are geniuses, you know, like, like uh, Van Gogh and stuff like that, where the weight of your own genius and smarts like you can get in your head so much that you see all of the pain in the world and you see all of the injustice in the world and all that sort of stuff. And none of it makes sense. And so, um, whereas on the very opposite end of the spectrum, no pun intended, you have people with really low IQ who are super happy all the time. They're just like blissfully believe blissful gleefully <laughs> blissful you, all day you. every day and they don't have a care in the world and something like self-harm doesn't even fall into their realm of consciousness you know and so i i think about that sometimes and kelly is um closer to the genius side of things to where it's like can you ever you're just always thinking you're always in your head there's always something else to do there's something that you didn't finish and there's some other thing that you have to grow and progress and and you got to work on your surfing and it feels so exhausting. Whereas you feel like Tom Curran is just dancing through life and he doesn't, it doesn't matter. Oh, I didn't, I didn't cash that $10,000 check, you know, that yeah. you, that you talked about. Yeah. No big deal. Who cares? Yeah. There'll be another one down the road. I'll get it. I ate today. I'm good. You know, that, that seems like a better way to go through life. Some of the topics that you just touched on are in that Ferris Jordan Peterson podcast he goes into some of that stuff. It's pretty fascinating. So it's neat that you sort of connect to those two things. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm team TC. Right. We all are. Even if you think you're not, you are. You just haven't watched closely enough. If you think you aren't. Yes. Um, the Red Bull Cape fear event is, is returning on ship Stern's bluff. My thoughts on this, David, I'm excited. It was fun to watch when they had it in Sydney there at, at ours. Um, the last time they had it at Ship Stearns, I believe it was underwhelming. Right? Don't you think? Do you remember? I don't remember. That? Yeah, uh, I think it, 
Yeah, I remember one event certainly didn't wasn't it was as exciting. One, yeah. it was that so? Okay. So my thoughts are, I'm excited for this, but is Sophie making noise back there? What she yeah. got a little squeaker? Yeah, David's see. beautiful black lab. Let Let's see. On. Let me see Sophie. Let's see what she looks like. <laughs> oh, I want to see. What, can we have a picture of Sophie? Can you bring yeah. her up here so we can see her? Or not? Yeah, I will. Right now, she's fighting me for that squeaker. She wouldn't let it go. Sophia. How big is she? I don't know, 55 pounds or so. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> she's grown a little bit. Yeah. She's about she's... 55 pounds at this point. Oh my Lordy. She's going to be a big dog. Yeah. I think this this might be it, actually. Oh, she's really? kinda, well, she's kind of stopped growing. I don't know if she'll have another spurt, but she's kind of stopped growing. She's tall. She looks like a tall dog. Long, long girl. Long. Uh, you know, it's funny, her personality's changed in recent months. She was mm. such a delight. And we bragged to everybody like, oh my God, she's amazing. Now she's got her voice. She's barking a bit. She's a little bit of, I mean, she doesn't bite people, but she'll bark at them. So if we have people over or whatever, she just gets all obnoxious yeah. and people are afraid yeah. of her. It's a bummer. Yeah, you just need to train her a little bit. She's just protecting you, right? Exactly. So I so blame she, Lauren, actually. She's, she doesn't need to protect me. She knows I'm the alpha, so she'll do anything. I could do anything with her. Yeah. But Lauren is the one she needs to protect. Well, anyway, it's it's fixable. She's probably really intelligent and highly trainable, so you should probably get on that. Yeah, she's pretty pretty intelligent, I'd say. Yeah. Right, and I, I learned the other day, by the way, I was interviewing the kid that got attacked by the great white shark, Keen Hayes. And that's coming up in the next boardroom podcast. It's an incredible podcast. But I, when interviewing him, his mom was, we were talking about their dog and they found this little, this little button that emits a noise that gets the dog to chill out. Like if they're barking or freaking out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When, when somebody comes to their house and the dog freaks out, they just push this button and the dog goes, <laughs> sounds kind of, sounds a little bit mean maybe. I don't no, know. No, no, I'm into it. Cause yeah. I've tried a couple of bark collars they're not super effective. And then I tried the citronella one and it just didn't work. And then I got yeah. a different citronella one that didn't work. So I need, and then I gave yeah. it. And they, they had gone through some of those processes too. And they finally found this one that seems to okay. work good. Good info. Um, so my feeling on Red Bull is that they should not run this thing unless it's borderline crazy. Okay. We've seen so much content from all of these slabs in Australia, wherever they might be, that we expect incredible triple ledge drop, crazy wipeout. Like it needs to be redlining or they should not run this thing. They can't run it just to run it. It needs to, they need to have the balls to pull the plug if the swell doesn't show up during the, the you know, supposed swell window. Agreed. It's, this is the, obviously a problem surf has found itself in forever. Once they build out the infrastructure of the event and kind of start advertising, they want to run it. And so it's yeah. hard, hard to wake up the morning of and red light, yeah. especially if there's, you know, there's no promise of green lighting it in a future swell. So they generally just green light and run the half version. But I agree with you. doesn't do well for the yeah. brand legacy if it's not yeah. a great event. There's just been too much great footage of these spots to to put us to put an event on and less less than you know. I'll tell you what, I have not felt 
that level of excitement for any event that I did when they advertised this. I think it was on their Instagram yesterday. I was scrolling and it's Chris Cote calling Russell Bierke into a wave. <laughs> and did you see this clip? I saw that. I saw the clip of Russell Berkey recently. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Was it that, the same clip? No, it was, yeah. it was from a previous event, right. uh, previous Cape fear event, but it's like Bierke just getting whipped into this thing going full speed, multiple steps down, pulls into this gaper. And then the camera angle switches from the cliff into like the jet ski angle, looking into the pit and you're watching him navigate the thing. And as he comes out, eats it and just gets sucked over the falls and starts like ragdolling as he's getting sucked over the falls. It's just pure pandemonium. You know, every single second of that ride was just pandemonium. And you go, Oh, I forgot about that event. I'm so psyched. It's coming back. That is what we want out of competitive surfing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now of note, and you might've seen this as well. um, Women will be competing in the event for the first time ever. Laura Enever and Lizzie Stokely will be two of the best well i think it's just those two um are they just in the is it just an open division so they're against the men i think so i believe so i think they're all just going to be together it's kind of uh, it's the kind of event that it doesn't matter who wins i don't remember any of the past winners because it's just so exciting to watch you know well what i remember is russell Bierke. like to me this event is all about russell Bierke. (laughs) like but did he that's what i remember you know I don't know. That, yeah, I don't care. I'm like, yeah, I don't yeah. care. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But what I remember is Russell Bierke, you know, exactly. like if you were to say, remember, remember the hours event? I'd be like, yeah, Russell Bierke was mental in that thing. And that's why, um, like, yeah, for the, they don't need a separate division for the women. If Laura Anover goes out there and just gets one epic ride that everybody remembers, that's adequate. She's done her job. Yeah. You don't need to win the event. Yeah. Well, a dangerous surf spot, and um, sadly, we are looking forward to some wipeouts. I got to admit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, is that true? Do we really want to see wipeouts? I'll tell you what. In I your would, heart of hearts, I would say no. If you said Russell made that wave instead of ate it, the one that I just described, I would have been just as psyched had he made it. However, yesterday, I it might have been Pulse Surf on Instagram posted a wipeout wednesday reel oh my god it was an epic like i was just every next clip i'm like how's this gonna end how's this going down and then somebody flicks their board at somebody else i'm like oh didn't see that one coming thought he was gonna go over the falls you know like it was super fun to watch so and i remember i mean surf videos from when i was a kid i the wipeout section was a highlight oh yeah everybody looked forward to that that's so true. And that's true as, I mean, that's a universal truth right now, right? We're, so we do want to see wipeouts at the Red Bull Shape, Ship Stearns Cape Fear event. I do, but I'll tell you what, it's a different scenario when somebody gets hurt. Yeah. Like watching that Billy Part 2 um, documentary Ooh. on WSL, Yeah, the end clip when he gets uh, smashed, Yeah, it does like, uh, leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And even you could tell they were leading up to the clip just by the, you know, music cues and stuff. Right. Right. And it was like, as he like bottom turned and started racing and you see that thing doubling up, there was like a pit forming in my stomach. Like, oh no, 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 no. This is the one. Oh no. And then he eats it. And you're just like, shoot, I think that's the one. And so, yeah, it does kind of leave a sour taste in your mouth. And I think Luke Davis even said, we're going from having the best trip of our life to having the worst trip of our life instantly, you know? Yeah. 
So, yeah, there's a fine line. You're right. You know, we don't want to see anybody get injured. Um, we do want to see some wipeouts. <laughs> well, because it reminds us of our own fragility. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy just to go surfing uh, all the time and not have a care in the world. And then you get your board hits you in the head once and you're like, oh, shoot, it was that bad. Am I bleeding? Like, uh, and then you're and then you're super cautious from that point on. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, look, I've had a couple little teeny, super small little falls, not even what I would call wipeout, just like a fall where like I caught an edge or something and I fell and landed on my back on, on Saxon's board. No, 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 <laughs> no, not that. But, but my point is, is that in that kind of situation, like a two to three foot wave mm-hmm. and just be like, Oh my God, I've had a wipeout, you know, like, yeah. Like, you know, or I had you feel, like a, moment you feel a like, shooting pain or something. And you're like, what was that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then you realize, wow, man, that, like stuff these guys are going through is, major i i in my youth i've had some pretty painful stuff happen but it's unbelievable when we watch those wipeouts from jaws every year at that event it's unbelievable more people don't get hurt it's crazy what their body goes through you know what i would like to um find out is you might recall one of the very first mavericks it wasn't even an event it was like when mavericks was sort of coming onto the scene i want to say in like 97 or whenever it was and um Eric from Power Lines. What's Eric's last name again? I forget. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, uh, is it Kurt? No, it's not Eric. Eric. I don't think. Kurt. Anyway, the guys from Power Lines had this video. They put out this video, like insane Mavericks, whatever, you know, like a two hour video. And in it, a guy takes a three wave hold down. Oh, do you recall this? No. It was like the first three wave hold down. It was like the kind of like the, the, you know, like the penultimate moment of the video where they show this three wave hold down this guy just you know it was brutal and they they interviewed him afterwards and it was obvious that he was shaken like it was a near death experience and i want to know whatever happened to that guy like you never saw that guy ever again <laughs> in every any mavericks of I'm sure he paddled back out eventually at some point, but who knows? I mean, that'd be an interesting story. How many people gave up surfing after a bad wipeout? Yeah. Fully gave it up. Like just didn't just surf their three foot beach break, but just said, I, I, I it's been a life changing moment. Yeah. Crazy. Not very many. I bet Not there aren't many. very many. I bet there aren't very many. I remember Shane Dorian. I forget what video it was when I was a kid, but he, um, took a lip to the head at back door, like a big kind of eight footer drops in like a proper hollow one drops in and he's bottom turning and the lip while he's at the bottom, bottom turning the lip just axes him in the head and just pile drives him. And he said that he didn't surf for two weeks after that, you know, it rung his bell. So he got out of the water and then just stayed out of the water for two weeks. And when I was a kid, that was really impressionable uh, on me. And because I was like, man, I'm not a pro surfer and I surf every single day and I couldn't go two days without surfing. What could possibly keep you out if you were a professional who lived in Hawaii and that'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty gnarly stuff. So Cape Fear, Red Bull Cape Fear event at Shipsterns. Oh, and, and we have an event at Newcastle. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, 
So of note, right? That plane leaves today. Doesn't it take off from LAX today? There's a tube. I think it's March 6 is what oh. I remember. Oh, okay. I thought it was the third. So there's a flying metal tube with <laughs> wings that's filled with every top surfer in the world. They're all on this plane together, right? <sighs> like is Kelly Slater on this plane? Did, did they fly from Hawaii to get on this plane? To, I mean, it, it's a special charter, right? Yes, that is the plan. So are they on the plane or not is a great question that we've been asking for months now, two months now. Um, but on Stab Premium, they did write about it and they said that the alleged cost for that plane is half a million bucks. And the WSL is selling seats on the plane to the, to the athletes. Oh, to anybody, oh, anybody who wants a, a seat on that flight to go compete, they're selling seats. Economy is twenty five hundred bucks. Premium economy is four thousand, and business is six thousand. This is a one way fare, and surfers are responsible for making their own way home. And uh, wow, that That's is pretty... well, it's you know, it's not the WSL trying to get rich off selling no, seats; it's them trying to cover their cost, right? Uh, but I agree with you. I agree with you. I was kind of shocked to see that as well. And then on top of that, uh, hotel quarantine costs, once you get to Oz are going to be about 2,500 bucks. So five grand just to get there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you get like a little, do you get like little eye coverings and some, some socks? I know. It better be a fancy blanket. I want like a proper down duvet. Taking that thing with me, man. <laughs> um, well, okay. So that's five grand. If you get last place at a, at a CT event, it's eight grand. So you can, you know. You'll, you'll be re- breaking even with a rent can, a car and food. Right. And so nothing to send home to the wife and kids, but enough to no. break even. What if you so, have multiple wives and multiple kids? And then well, screwed. now you're broke. Yeah, you're- <laughs> Well, might want to stay home and get a job at Amazon. You know, I was looking at the forecast. There's a couple of mean cyclones in the Coral Sea that are pre- predicted to form. Um, doesn't mean, I don't know if it means much for Newcastle unless it gets around Byron Bay, but, uh, or, you know, the, the Byron headland there. But uh, the Gold Coast is going to be lighting up. Yeah. And I know that doesn't matter because they're not going to the Gold Coast. Last week, I kind of stumbled upon the idea of like, what if um, we lose because we have lesser events on tour this year, QS quality events. What if we lose people like Jack Robinson and some of these great surfers that would actually thrive in a dream tour scenario. And then they're not on tour for 2022. Yeah, We talked about this last week. This was our main concern. Yeah, And a couple of people responded and said, well, in order to get kicked off tour and for somebody to fill their spot, there would probably have to be a QS tour. <laughs> and are there, are they even running QSs? I mean, we know that they are running a couple, but not enough to probably um, justify picking, you know, uh, a worthy group of athletes that need to get bumped up to the, to the CT level. So I'd be shocked if, they actually um, applied the same old math and equation that they applied in previous years. Of course, we have no word from the WSL onto how they're going to do the qualification math in the, in the next year, but 
it'd be shocking to see somebody who won two one stars, let's say, throughout 2021, replace Jack Robinson, yeah. who got last place on the CT or something. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen either. I agree with you that, especially because the way the system works is the people that fill in those last ten spots on the CT come from those elite QS. What are, what's the elite QS called? They were six stars for a while. They're primes for a while. Yeah, whatever they're called. They change every year the name of them. But Ten thousands for a while. Ten, yeah, there's some other name now, I think. But anyway, you know, they're not going to take one-star guys and put them into the... Well, if they only ran one-star events is what I mean. Because they're not, right. they haven't run any prime events as far right. as I know. No. Yeah, the winner of the East Coast Surfing Championship is, probably isn't going to make it into the... But in theory, in theory, there could be a scenario where there were only one stars run and there and maybe each one had a different winner and they all have very marginal points. But the CT still has a bottom tier of guys who normally get bumped off by the top tier QS guys. So that would be a weird changeover if they if they apply the old math, it would be for a very forced fit in 2022. You know, um, you and I've spoken about like what, what fills the void if you know, five years from now, this thing goes away and there's, there's no central governing body of pro surfing and, and it evolves or devolves, depending on how you look at it, into this deregulated, decentralized nation state thing where Australia has their guys and Brazil has their guys and North America has their guys and Hawaii has their guys and Tahiti has their guys. Um, And what, so, and then they all decide to get together. They all determine five guys and they get together for the triple crown in Hawaii every year. And I was talking with Ian Cairns about this and we came to the realization that what already the, the ISA already has this in place. Like this could all turn into just the ISA running the whole deal because they have all of the relationships and everything's set up because of the Olympics for this already nation States bringing their best to a central location for a championship. Every four years, it's called the Olympics, but those other years, it's called the World Championships, you know, and it just turns back into 1966 ISA running the whole deal. This thing's like given to Fernando. It's just like, here you go. You know, like that's an opportunity. Let's take a commercial break and get back to this. Okay. We're back from commercial, Scott. Yeah. eBay sneakers. I'm a big fan. So what were you talking about? You're talking about the ISA. Right. So the the potential changeover if and when the WSL is no longer around. It makes sense that they would be uh, in line. They have the infrastructure. I have a question for you, though. Yeah. I know coaches, you know, for the ISA. I know a bunch of surfers that competed in the ISA. I still have no interest in watching an ISA event ever. And as you were talking, I was trying to analyze why. And it's because the format it's a three to the beach format and they're doing it in crappy waves. They come and they do an event in Huntington. Then they go to Virginia beach. I think they're actually in Virginia beach right now, or maybe it's Florida, somewhere in Florida. And it's like, and then I watch them do eight like windshield wiper turns to the beach. It has zero interest uh, for the viewers. So I, and then I see who won and I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't know who cares. doesn't matter. doesn't mean anything to me. So I agree with you. They could, they'd be, they have the right infrastructure to do what you said. However, they would need a strong reband, rebrand to change their identity. Yeah. In the eyes of the viewer. I agree. I agree. Even the logo is lame. 
And the name is lame. ISA. <laughs> like, what is it? You know? I don't know, but you're right. There would need to be some changes. But but what we were getting at was yeah, I get um, it. Administratively, there's a there's a found there's a framework there, you know, and um, so that could be the deal. And what's fascinating about that to me is that you could get somebody like Carlos Munoz winning the world champ, being the world champion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if you bring five guys from each nation state to the triple crown for three events in Hawaii, you could get some interesting. And I think that's kind of cool, right? Yeah. Like this idea that, that some guy from Israel could friggin' win the world championship. You know, you just don't know. It is interesting. I think, um, ultimately you'd end up at the same conclusion that we have now though, which is John, John and Gabe. Yeah. Those, those people, Carlos Munoz would win every year in his country. He's a big fish in a small pond and you'd have a bunch of those. And so you'd think logically, let's just put all the big fish in a pond together and let them fight it out at the best waves around the world. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of what we've been trying to do. Um, did you see rip curl sponsors the finals event for the WSL at lowers? I did. Rip Curl sees a big void and they're seeing an opportunity and they're jumping at it. And uh, Claw, Doug Warbrick and Neil Ridgway, smart guys grabbing a hold of this thing, I think. That is the story here. And we talked about it with the four event run in Australia, which they sponsored those as well. They're amazing at seeing, at um, gaining market share when everybody else is down, you know, just everybody else is scared and they're holding on. They're zipping up their purse, tightening up, holding on to their money and rip curls going perfect. We'll come in, give you pennies on the dollar and then we'll own it. And we'll sign a three-year contract so that we own it when things are ripe again. And not that a three-year contract means anything by the way, because outer known, <laughs> outer known sponsored cloud break for three years. And then it promptly disappeared two weeks later and we've never seen it again. So, but, I think this is a smart move for rip curl. Uh, it doesn't affect me one way or the other, or does it? However, I, I didn't know whether or not this is um, uh, a conflict of interest. You tell me right out of the gates, you'll know yeah. the WSL immediately is posting about the relationship, you know, and like, championship will be decided in one day and kind of promoting the format, but they're using obviously rip curls athletes in the imagery. So it's a shot of Gabriel Medina who will take the world title. It's a shot of Tyler, Wright Who will win the world title on the final day at lowers. And it's almost like, um, obviously rip curl is going to want their athletes used in the promotion of the event. But I also feel like it's a little bit, of a scripting, not, not that the WSL would change the numbers. You just really shouldn't as the organizing body running the contest, you really shouldn't be using one person's imagery to advertise an upcoming world title. That was my, well, here, here's what's interesting about that, right? Is that in the past, Bill Martin was great at this and all the companies were great at this. They would love to take Kelly Slater's image and use it to promote their event. You know, because now all of a sudden they're getting Kelly Slater for free. And yeah. and people don't, people are like, oh, Kelly Slater, Rip Curl, I get it. You know, like people, you know, your general, you know, everyone doesn't follow that. Hey, they're, they're getting some free skin from Kelly Slater here. And right. so obviously the WSL is like, look, we can't use other 
brands, athletes, or we'll have to like get sign off. It'll take forever to get it done and blah, blah, blah. So let's just use your guys. So my feeling is Rip Curl was like, okay, that's cool too. But if you want to throw in, you know, Idolo or Ethan Ewing or whoever, you know, fine, let's do it. But if you can't, okay, here are our guys, you know? So I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't think that Rip Curl negotiated, Hey, you can only use our guys. I think they went, look, we got to get this thing out there, use our guys. That way we don't have to deal with trying to get sign off from everybody else. My feeling was the opposite. When I saw it, my thought was Rip Girl probably did negotiate that. They probably said, and and that feels like the WSL's back is against the wall to me. It feels like the WSL oh, needs the money. Yeah. They'll do whatever, they'll sign whatever. And yeah, okay, we'll use your guys. And then that now completely undermines the objectivity of the competition. Yeah, I, I I don't know which way it went, and it would not surprise me at all if they went, hey, you can only use Rip Curl people if we're going to sign this document. That, that, that wouldn't surprise me. But again, I, I feel like they're also savvy enough to go, you know, please use use the greatest surfer in the world as a way to promote our event. But Who's, who's that? Well, in their eyes, it's probably as far as, you know, I know you're going to say Gabe, but I'm going to say North America, it's Kelly, right? I mean, Kelly's hanging out with Charles Schwab. Rip Curl wants that mojo, you know what I mean? Or Charles Schwab's son. <laughs> Same difference. Schwab. Schwab. <laughs> what, what mojo is that? What do you mean? Just, Rip Curl wants that mojo of hanging out with Michael Schwab, Michael B. Schwab. Yeah, like super uber successful billionaires. Like, yeah, but Gabriel's, hang, Gabriel's hanging out with uber right. successful millionaires no, I, look, who are in the celebrity limelight. I like, agree. So like, wouldn't it be great if we had... Kelly Slater and Gabe representing our event. Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, it's all suspect to me. I'm, I it smell is. a fish. <laughs> yeah. It's fishy. That's the thing about the ocean. It smells a little fishy. Um, did you watch Andy Irons and the radicals last week? No, you did should. You? Should I? All right. I will. Is it it's better good. than we had? Oh, good. It's really good. I mean, how can you not like Andy Irons? I mean, at the end of the day, we were kind of poo-pooing Ashton and all that, but I don't remember doing that. Yes. Was it me? I don't know. I don't remember either of us doing that. <laughs> I think we, I feel like no, you no. just revealed a personal sentiment. No, we we were kind of going. Look, we've got enough Andy Irons. Really, oh, like, oh, isn't oh. all of the good Andy Irons already out there? I mean, it's like we milked the living yeah, shit yeah, out yeah, of yeah, Andy yeah. Irons. Yeah, yeah. And then to so, go find B level stuff, we felt like maybe it was a stretch. But then we also said, who knows? We haven't seen it yet. Let's let's see what it reveals. Maybe it'll be cool. And and like I'm saying here, like the end of the day, if it's if it's a good edit, you know. A little more Andy Irons is pretty cool. You know, it's kind of like watching Tom Curran. It's like, can't get enough, you know? So it's, um, Andy is the central figure, but it's more talking about the cultural revolution that came with Andy. And it's told around, you know, Andy as being the central figure, but kind of about the lost movement. Honestly, episode one was more about lost than it was Andy. And episode two is going to be about the log cabins house. And these, these air Thursdays on stab premium. Um, and so what I, I mean, I really enjoyed it because it was a very kind of important moment for my early upbringing in surf. This is when I was getting into surf and these things were highly influential. And those early lost videos were the ones that we would just watch over and over. Yeah. And, um, what's hilarious though about it is viewing it in the eyes of history. Like, 
these people are talking historically about my formative surf experience <laughs> and I don't view myself as an old person yet. Yeah. I view that as being like, oh yeah, no, that was like, I don't know, 10 years ago, right? Because that's when I was getting into surfing. No, that's 20, 25 years ago yeah. at this point. That is actually history at this point. And of course we have enough uh, hindsight and context to understand how influential it was. And at the time I was being influenced by it and, but it just was what it was, you know? So to be able to see back, look back now and recognize. And so Ashton did a good job of kind of stepping back and looking at it with the historical lens and um, it changed everything, you know? It totally changed everything. It changed the way clothing is sold. It changed the boards that people rode. It changed how we judge surfing competitively, changed everything. When you say it, what do you mean it? That movement, that movement that was kind of centered around. What movement? Well, help me out without uh, seeing the video. I haven't watched it. So like what Andy, I I would say what Andy Irons, Chris Ward and Corey Lopez were kind of doing with Lost promoting them. Yeah. uh, You know, change the way that Kelly Slater competed, change the, you know, the boards that people were writing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I I don't think you could argue with with that with the power of the lost marketing machine it was incredible and mike riola deserves a lot of credit for that as well as matt and um, there's a lot of truth to all of that stuff um and mike's in it they grabbed a lot of you know what they did was they grabbed they embraced what surfing really was which was sort of this you know what, it, what surfing's always been has been a little bit hell's angels, a little bit motorcycle, a little bit anti-culture, uh, you know, a little bit, um, you know, Kerouac, a little bit, you know, off totally. the grid. And, and they were smart and they went, that's because to them, I mean, if you're in the San Clemente surf ghetto, you know, they got guys dying of heroin in the next to the glass shop. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, and so, that's what it was to them. It was authentic too, you know, it was like, and then, you know, you had Herbie as an, as an influence and Herbie was a great, you know, it was that whole vibe was just, um, I, I don't think the I think the San Clemente surf ghetto and the people behind the scenes there really helped shape a lot of that stuff, you know, um, the Dana Point mafia, even you could go that deep into like, you know, guys like Daryl Diamond and, um, I mean, there's a lot of characters back there that that helped influence the way Matt and Mike saw things. Because Matt and Mike weren't really from San Clemente. I mean, you know, and so they came in, got work, got jobs. I think Matt's, I think Mike's from Florida. I don't know, but anyway, yeah, I forget too. They they really did a great job of embracing, you know, that whole vibe, that sort of dark vibe. I'm going to say the sort of yeah. dark vibe, which was exact the antithesis of like quicksilver echo beach look how yeah. clean and scrubbed and polished we are and lou danny quack and you know and they just went you know what that's not my experience i'm here in san Clemente, and it's pretty rough it's pretty gritty it's pretty raw and we're going to bring that and put it in your face and it's in the name of chris ward andy irons and and the lopez brothers and some other guys like some other kind of really sketchy san Clemente guys you know that that quickly blew up in everyone's faces and we're going to throw, you know, the, um, who was the drunken Randall <laughs> Randall. Thank you. We're going to throw Randall down your throats too. And some, and some, you know, they, so yeah, 
there, there's no doubt that the marketing, I mean, the story to me is the marketing machine that was those lost videos, you know? Well, you should watch it because it covers a lot of that. Yeah, and again, it again, it's interesting as a kind of creating this historical context that I didn't even realize was history yet. You know, I'm watching it just thinking, oh yeah, they're just telling the beginning story of, but no, that is the story is that, yeah. that cultural revolution. There was a video they put out. I, I think it was called lost at sea. Yeah. I loved it. And um, that was the one where like they got Andy pounding beers in the tube at HT. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's the one where things went pretty bad. Yeah, that, that trip I believe went pretty bad for Andy. Great soundtrack on that video. Anyway, I'm gonna. This is right in your wheelhouse. So this to you, this is like, you know, my this is like my free ride. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when I was 15 years old, I was going. Oh, free ride was probably 10 years old by then, but I was still going. Oh, you know, because yeah. surf movies. There was no surf videos back then. But anyway, yeah, that's cool. Well, and check I'm, it. Check it. Yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying the series. Um, I'm going to check it. I'm, I'm okay. looking forward. To it. Um, by the way, Scott, we owe a huge shout out as always to need essentials. Uh, I, the yeah. waves have been flat. I have not been surfing nor wearing a wetsuit. Yeah. Is I it flat been. down there? Well, it's been fun. It's small, but it's been blue and crystal blue. Okay. The water is really, really cold. So I have been suiting up and need essentials. I'm big fans of everything that they do. I was just in Santa Barbara. I was thinking, oh, I should go visit Rob, but um, didn't come to pass. But um, Well, Ryan from Neat Essentials in Australia reached out to me. They're um, going to be debuting a new four-part series with Torin Martin and his filmmaker, a new Lost Track series. So we can look forward to that and we'll discuss it on air. But I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Um, yeah. Those Torn Martin films that drop every once in a while have been pretty pivotal kind of in our awareness for the last two to five years and i haven't seen one for a few months so i'm excited to see what they've been working on um so there's that to look forward to but again neat essentials for wetsuits for outerwear dude when i did tahoe two weeks ago it was all neat essentials neat essentials yeah. snowboard pants which yeah. i use as ski pants um the puffy jacket with the hood and the shell the outer shell yeah all of it's perfect you know yeah how is the snow amazing dude we, God, we I'm, jonesing. I'm totally jonesing i want to go i was last night i was looking i was like about to book a ticket i'm just like i gotta go to where i was gonna go to i might go to big sky in montana but um it's friggin' pricey and then i was like oh maybe i'll just go to snow basin i usually go to snow basin in utah it's super simple flight to salt lake and jumping around a car and you're up there in an hour it's perfect cool. i so we did heavenly south tahoe and um we skied Thursday and it was like empty and super fun. And then Friday was super windy. So we canceled the tickets. They closed the gondola and, um, but it snowed that night. Like it was windy all day and then snowed that night. So we woke up Saturday morning and it was like six, I think plus inches and sunny and oh. giant line to get up there. But once you're on the mountain, it's all spread out enough up there to where lines aren't too long. And it was like Saturday was the dream day. Wow. That sounds yeah, it, was, it was a blast. Yeah. How many runs do you get in before you're like, I'm good, dude. Nobody, nobody can hang with me. Uh, like Ooh. I, I want to ski all day. Like I will show up at 9am when they open and I'll ski yeah. till four and yeah. by noon or one people are, and I won't even take a lunch. I'll bring beef jerky and a couple of bars. And by like 1130 noon, people are like, I want to let's grab lunch. Let's have a drink. And I'm like, what? 
And then they sit there for an hour or two and then it's two o'clock and they're like, let's just do two or three runs and go home. And I'm like, we spent so much money, so much effort to get here. Like I want to get 30 runs in, you know, were your friends um, that were ready to hang it up? Were they snowboarding or skiing? Skiing. Okay. Skiing is way less, um, you know, tiring. wear and tear on your body and yeah, tiring. Yeah. Skiing is the way to go. I should start skiing again. But yeah. I, I grew up skiing and then I snowboarded through high school cause I got peer pressured into it with my surf, you know, friends. And yeah. then after high school went on a trip with my dad and my grandpa in Colorado and they were skiing. So I'm like, eh, I should ski again. And I never put a snowboard back on. Yeah. That's smart. You're just yeah. laughing. You're just standing there watching some guy with a wet butt trying to get yeah, exactly. a snowboard on. That's me. Exactly. <laughs> well, hey, for anybody got- who's going to the mountain need essentials. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have my whoop thing, by the way. Did you get your whoop? Yeah. Whoop. Your whoop. Whoop. We're not whoop. supposed to talk about it yet. Oh, all right. Whatever. We have an onboarding call this week where we can. Uh, I want to start using it because I know me too. I was longboarding the other day and I was just, I was just getting the such an intense workout. I was like going hard and I was thinking, okay, tired, do another lap. You know, you know, I was like, oh God, if I had that thing on, I'd be knowing what I was up to, but. Well, I know. And my buddy, so this is going to be perfect and we will just tease it now, but we'll cue listeners in later in a week or two, actually April, one month from now. But a buddy who I was skiing with that day tracks everything on his watch. And he's like, I got up to 65 miles an hour on that run. (laughs) And Annie told me exactly how many runs he got in that day, how much mileage he covered. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting being able to track it. I never would have even thought, I, I have no idea how fast I've ever gone on skis. And he knew. So did you feel like you wanted to beat his number? No, oh, not okay, at okay. all. Yeah. Smart. He, he has like <laughs> brand new skis. He gets them waxed all the time. Mine are like 20 years old. I don't know. Oh, right. yeah. I have limitations. Right. Um, well, Hey, so you talking about, we're going to talk about musty moment and I've got a Duke because mm-hmm. I got to get off air pretty quick. Um, yeah. But for musty moment, you were saying you haven't watched Andy Irons and the radicals. Have you right. watched Billy, the documentary? No. So that is exactly what I suspected that you would say. And my question to you is, are we too old for surf videos? No, I don't think so. Um, I should probably watch, you know what it is, is that I put too much preconceived BS on stuff. I'm too, I'm too close-minded. I need to go into these things more open-minded. Like, you know what, maybe I will enjoy it. I usually look at it and go, ah, I think I know that, you know, but I mean, I love a good story. I guess I'm kind of jaded about surf media, you know, like, did you watch this movie called I care a lot? Yeah, I did. How insane was that movie? That was such a good movie. It was good. It was fun. Right. I mean, it was fun. Yeah. And so you see something like that and you're like, Oh, am I going to get the same sort of conflict and resolution and kind of deep twists and plot changes with Billy Kemper's story? No. And really with nonfiction, it's hard to get those, but the really good documentaries have those. You know? I love documentary. Yeah. And so anyway, we'll see. Yeah. I, I want to watch it. I just, I, I guess not, though, with, yeah. with surf, ahead. with surf, uh, like Mason Ho dropped his new thing with Mason and Michael at Backdoor. I was like, sweet. I want to watch that. I go to watch it and it's 27 minutes long. And yeah. I just think to myself again, you just dropped an edit last week. I can't do this. I don't have enough time. If it was three minutes, I would have watched it. And so, but then I realized also 
I'm an old man now and my lost references are 25 years old. And so is the new world, you know, kids, they gobble all that. They watch that. Then they watch Jamie O'Brien's. Then they watch Ben Gravy's. Then they watch Nathan Florence's. And then they watch. And yeah. so they gobble it up, but they're not probably watching the latest yeah. Netflix series yeah. that you and I are into or whatever. Nor are they listening to Tim Ferriss with Jordan Peterson. <laughs> or you and I right now. Um, right. So I just thought like, God, am I too old for this? I, I'll pick and choose. And by the way, it'll take me five days to get to it. You yeah. know, I'll say, oh, Billy's out. Okay, put that on my list. Andy Irons, put that on my list. And then it'll take me a few days. Yeah. While I'm, in, while I'm at, while I'm literally like eating lunch, shoveling food in my face. Yeah. Now I'll just take 20 minutes to watch something. Yeah. But um, it's hard. It's hard it to track everything that's happening right now. It is. It's hard. My musty moment is Ian Crane's um, wax, wax on, wax off. on wax, which isn't really that great. I it's mean, a I hilarious it. title, dude. It is a great title. <laughs> wax on, W-A-X on, right. wax off, W-A-C-K-S off. There's some moments of it that are cool, you know, but it's not like you're like, oh my God, David, I'm going to text you and tell you right now, drop everything and watch this. No, but it's, it's fun. Good. Ian Crane serves good. Carolyn Marks, that's a cool section. It's neat watching Morocco because I've been there a couple of times. I'm into it. But, you know, I also then just flipped on um, McFanning at Snapper at it on Surfline. And it was, it was just as or more fascinating. And you know what else I found myself doing? Because I've been watching the Byron Bay Surfline cam while I'm in Zoom meetings. And it's, it's kind of fun to just watch the pass. Yeah. Even though the surfing is just whatever. And it's kind right. of pulled back. But anyway, that's my musty moment. Ian Crane's beachhead. Because Ian Crane surfs good in that. He's great. Um, yeah. And Carolyn the- Marks surfs good in that. You said you like Morocco because you or you like watching because you've been there a few times. The segment in Billy Part Two, where the waves that he actually gets hurt, the early part of that session, it's about a three minute, uh, three to five minute piece of the documentary, is phenomenal. Seeing those guys at the top of their game. I mean, a lot people make fun of Luke Davis, but the guy shreds and his style so sick. And Koa Smith. Um, and Billy himself, seeing Billy navigate those tubes after coming out of Hawaii that season where he was navigating ones two and three times the size, he's just playing in Morocco, you know? And um, it was the day of days at that particular spot and really, yeah. really kind of drained out. And those guys were just ruling out there. I could see me and you and I just being quaking in our boots, paddling into those waves and they're just ruling out there. So that section, I actually really enjoyed. I, I'm just going to take... Uh, a little bit of note to that. I, I don't think I'd be quaking in my boots. I'd probably be frothing at the mouth, excited and psyched. You watch one or two of those drainers, dude. You'll be like, you'll think twice. Just tow me into them. I'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, early entry and then just stand there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So my Duke is the feel good story of the week. Yes. Pauline Mensker. Did you track this? No. So, um, she won the world title in 1999. I'm sorry, 1993. And <laughs> sorry, 1993. Yeah. And ultimately used $25,000 of her $30,000 in winnings that year 
to just fund her travel. Like she didn't have any sponsors. There was very, very little money on the women's tour. So she used the vast majority of her uh, earnings to fund her travel. So there's a documentary that's kind of profiling a documentary that's coming out called girls can't surf. And she's being profiled in that and that year of her winning the title. And so somebody else, not her, but kind of one of the people who know her story put together a GoFundMe. And they're like, hey, let's come up with the $30,000 that Pauline won and just gift it to her now. She's a bus driver in Byron Bay. That's what she currently does. And let's just do this as like a goodwill internet thing. And the internet rallied and the GoFundMe is at $45,000 right now. Cool. And um, so I'm going to give you a quick backstory on Pauline because people should hear her story and in preparation for the film. From Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Serving, he said two weeks before the event started in Hawaii, the 23-year-old Mensker uh, had an arthritis attack, which by the way, I didn't say that, but she has rheumatoid arthritis. Um, So she had an arthritis attack that put her temporarily in a wheelchair. Seven days later, she began paddling her surfboard in a pool as a warm-up. On the day of the contest, held in windblown eight-foot surf at Sunset Beach, she scraped into the finals and won the title. I couldn't even brush my own hair, she said, of her pre-title attack. My body just shut down. And so from the GoFundMe page that her friends set up, they said, Pauline is a pioneer of the sport of surfing. The vast majority of her career was spent sponsorless, cashless, and competing while battling a crippling disease of rheumatoid arthritis, but that didn't stop her. In 1993, she made it to the top and became a world champ, solidifying one of the great underdog stories in sporting history. Whilst prize money is now a given in the professional sport, the ASP did not award world title bonus checks every year that the tour was run. Like other athletes during this time period, Pauline was never given a check for the world title which she won in 1993. That year, she won a total earnings of $30,000, 25,000 of which she spent to travel to make it to events. The soon to be released film, Girls Can't Surf, is the inspiring true story of Pauline and a group of rebellious women surfers in the 1980s who took on the male dominated professional, professional surfing world in a fight for inclusion, recognition, and equality. The film explores Pauline's story of never getting a major sponsor, competing on the world title for, on the world tour for 20 years, surfing her entire career with rheumatoid arthritis, all while getting paid a fraction of what the men were getting in prize money. Um, I think that's the majority of it. It finishes by saying, even in the late 90s, she took a tent on tour and slept in friends' backyards while traveling on tour. She now lives in Byron Bay in Northern New South Wales and works as a bus driver. She is the picture of determination, passion, perseverance, and deserves to be recognized for her achievements. So Duke of the Week. That's cool. You know, she's she's an interesting um, story because, you know, she came onto the scene when right at sort of the beginnings, um, if not in the middle of the whole Roxy surf girl thing, where it was like, you know, Lisa Anderson, and you had to be pretty. I'm just going to call it like I see it. The the brand, she was extremely unmarketable to the brands because the brands were looking for this like sort of, um, you know, iconic figure, uh, you know, like a, um, like a beautiful blonde that surfed good. And if you weren't that, they didn't really want to sponsor you. And Pauline, bless her heart, didn't fit that mold. You know, which is a mold based on just this sort of, I mean, 
you know, it's a, it's a patriarchal mold, mold. It's a Barbie mold. And she was the anti-Barbie. And that she was just, no, but no surf brands would touch her. And she, and her surfing ability was uh, beyond compare as, right. as is proven by her, her determination. Yeah. So I'm sure that the documentary touches on this. Yeah. Awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah. And, and shout out to everybody who rallied to come up with that prize check for her. That's pretty, just like, a, again, a feel good story from the week. How much did you give? Zero. But somebody what? gave, somebody gave $5,000. And I will remain anonymous. Okay. <laughs> it was anonymous, actually. It's cool. I'm stoked for her. Yeah. All right, Scott. Great show. Yeah, man. Great show. Uh, until next time, adios and aloha. If you feel that it's real, I'm all trial and I'm here again. You're present. In your man, I am dented and I'll spit with hot trees on. Through a glass eye, you throng as the one danger zone. Take me to the pilot for control. Take me to the pilot of your song. Take me to the pilot, beat me to the tamer. Take me to the pilot. The one